Hello, everyone, and welcome to What About the Canadians podcast. My name is Ashley. And my name is Shauna, and we're two rookie historians bringing to you the Canadian history you should know. This season, we will be discussing World War I through a Canadian perspective. And more specifically, we'll examine the battles the Canadians served in. All right, we are on to part two of the Battle of the Somme, and Shauna, I have to say, oops, I did it again. (laughs) It is like so long. Oh my God. It's every, it, it couldn't not be long. This is going to be like a night ender for anybody who's listening. (laughs) I know. I like so much. I'm just not even going to like talk about how much I should write anymore because I said like, is it okay if I just do a high level on these battles? I I don't really want to go into detail. They're not about the Canadians. I have more material than I did on my last mini-sode about the Victoria Cross winners. (laughs) So be prepared. (laughs) Yeah. So the first bit isn't even about the Canadians again. The first Battle of the Somme wasn't about the Canadians. This part is not going to be about the Canadians. No. But they will come in. It's important to cover, though, because you don't want to just jump in, like, two-thirds of the way through. (laughs) Yeah, no, you need the context there, for sure. I agree. So let's get into the context, but we're going to first start with a summary. So... Last episode, we left off on July the 1st, where the Allies on the Western Front had launched an offensive from Gumcourt to the south of the River Somme to provide relief to the French at Verdun, and of course, hopefully to break through the front, or at the very least, wear down German numbers and move the line forward towards Beaupalm, and then, ah, this is the word I wanted to look up. We've been here. Is it... (laughs) Arras? Arras? Arras. I think it's Arras. Okay. Yeah, we went there, right? Yeah, yeah, that's where we stayed. Yeah, 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 okay. Anyway. Now, the Somme had been a relatively quiet sector throughout the war, which, of course, gave time um, to the Germans to build an effective defense system. Now, there they had established two lines, and a third was underway. Now, when I say line, it was more than just a line, it had a fire trench, a support trench, a reserve trench, uh, communication trenches running perpendicular uh, to those trenches. Um, it was manned by, not mad, but it was lined with heavy barbed wire. They had underground t- tunnels and dugouts that were 10 meters deep, and their telephone wires were six feet deep. So they had a pretty effective system in place. So this was not an easy attack for the Allies to go on. I saw a quote today. It was either a quote or um, a letter. I was reading a bunch of letters home today. And one said that they even had women in those trenches because after the Canadians attacked, they found women's clothing in there. Oh, really? (laughs) I don't know what women were there. I don't know why there was women's clothing, but that's what this one bit said i guess so (laughs) so they had a whole city (laughs) yeah yeah underground city (laughs) um now in contrast um kitchener's new army was inexperienced and short on ammunition 
Now, I just wanted to say quickly, we didn't touch upon this last episode, but um, Lord Kitchener actually passed away on June 5th, 1916, when the HMS Hampshire struck a mine. Um, he was on his way to Russia to discuss issues on the Eastern Front. Now, I know we didn't talk about him a whole lot, but I, I thought we would just maybe mention that. Um, now, continuing on, uh, they, of course, had the BEF, I should say, had support from the Indian and Dominion armies, in addition to support of the 5th and 6th French armies. Now, the French held the line south of Montauban, and they supplied artillery units as their heavy guns were better at destroying barbed wire. Now, as we know from the last episode, the Allies successfully took the first German positions at Fricourt, Mametz, and Montauban, plus the territories north and south of the River Somme. However, it was an unmitigated disaster on the northern half of the line. Now, this in part was because the Germans were fully aware of an attack that was coming. Now, this was because, A, the Germans held the high ground in that area so they could kind of see the BEF's movements. And second, they were able to intercept uncoded British communications. So, yikes. Why were, who made that mistake? I don't know, but way to hand it over on a, like a silver platter. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're coming. <laughs> Hey, we didn't cock this up enough. Here you go. Let's yeah. tell you all about it. In case you were unsure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, in those first few weeks after the big push, efforts were concentrated on capturing the first position between Thiepval and Fricor in the middle sector. And this included um, Olivier. Ah, I meant to write down the pronunciation. Ovillier. Whatever. Uh, Canton Maison and La Boisselle. <laughs> Once captured, they then could move on to the German second line that ran through Pazier south to Bazentin La Petit and Bazentin La Grande. Now, in this central section, we know that the first objective must have been taken because Shauna already took us through that battle for the two Bazentines uh, in the last episode. Yes, I did. Go back and listen to it because I don't want to go through that again. <laughs> they won. <laughs> <laughs> now, on the southern sector, uh, having already captured the first German line on the first day, the men could advance on the woods of Fricor, Bottomwood, Mamet's Wood, Bernafe Wood, Trones Wood, and the woods of Bazentine. And they took these with relative success. It's a very wooded area. <laughs> <laughs> and each one had to have their own name. That's right. Uh, so from there, they could move on to the second German position from the two Byzantines to Longival, which, again, we know they captured. And this brings us to phase two of the Battle of the Somme, and we are going to touch on the larger battles of Delwood Woods and did I say Delve Delwood? Delville. You said Delwood. Oh. <laughs> Delville. Ah! Delville. <laughs> Delville Woods 
and Pauzier. <laughs> This is what happens. You record 9.30 on a Friday. <laughs> you know, it's not the research that is killing us. It's just the pronunciations. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we're struggling. <laughs> yeah. Sure. All right. Um, so before I get started, I do want to mention that the battle on the Byzantine villages also included an offensive on the village of Longy Val which, although mostly successful, left the right flank next to Delville Wood exposed. So the men of the 26th and 27th Highlanders were held at the northern edge of the village since the Germans had established a series of machine gun nests along the high ground, therefore making it basically impossible to capture until Delville Wood was also secured. So, according to our good friend General Haig, Olangivale and Delvale were the key to taking Gilmall. Uh, Ginchy, Ginchy. <laughs> Whenever I see it, I want to say like Ginch, like your underwear. Like, <laughs> but I know that's not right, and the French would be like mortified. If <laughs> I think it's Ginchy. I think it's just Ginchy. Yeah, Ginchy. I can't think of another way to say that. Yeah. Okay. All these, all these hard names. Um, <laughs> anyway, he commanded that these objectives had to be taken at all costs. And I bolded all costs. So you know he meant business. This was serious. This man was serious. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the first uh, South African Infantry Brigade received their orders at 12.55 a.m. on the morning of July the 15th that they were to advance to the southwest corner of Delville Wood, where the 5th Cameron Highlanders were holding Buchanan Street. Um, it's kind of like a road. It's not really a road, but uh, you know when you're going out hiking and you see these big wide paths that maybe cars have driven down? That's kind of what they were naming these the streets in the wood at the time. So that's what I mean by street. Now, um, many of the men in the South African Brigade fought in opposition to the British in the Boer War. Now, for the first time on the Western Front, they actually fought alongside the British and their allies. Uh, interestingly, um, King George V had visited a hospital ward like after, after the fact and approached uh, one of the Middle-Age Afrikaners, and he had said, are you a Boer War veteran? The soldier replied, yes, sir. Well, whose side were you on? I fought against you, sir. Why'd you fight for us now? Because the last time you were in the wrong, sir, but now you are in the right. The king chuckled. Ooh. No, the king laughed and he walked away. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, by this time, the Boer War was like, least about 20 years old so <laughs> well this soldier must have been old then if he was a veteran of the boer war and then a veteran of world war one he had yeah. to at least been in his 40s yeah probably I would think yeah you're probably right yeah uh so arriving at buchanan street from montalban lieutenant colonel tanner laid out his plans to overtake the wood now at 5 a.m question mark 6 a.m i'm not sure sources said different times 
doesn't really matter. Uh, the second and third battalions began the advance with ease until they had reached the perimeter of the woods. Now, on the northeast corner, the 10th Barbarian Division launched a counterattack. And across the field on the south side at Waterloo Farm, the South Africans could see figures in the distance. And for 30 whole minutes, they sat there debating whether these men were indeed German or French. Now, of course, no one wants to be caught in a friendly fire situation. So a private Bert Nock was sent by his lieutenant to tell one of the bloody gunners to stop, quote unquote, just go tell that gunner, quit it, just stop it. <laughs> but in his investigation, he came across a half a dozen men. And when he peered out from behind a tree, he was shot in the arm. And that arm dangled from his body completely lifeless because <laughs> Wow. It severed his main nerve. So needless to say, Nock was pretty certain that these gunners were not French. So (laughs) that answered his question. Yeah. Uh, In the worst way. Yeah. Yeah, he was lucky, I guess. So um, by 2 p.m., it was reported that the South Africans were successful in capturing the southern and northeast northeast section of the wood, only leaving the northwest corner adjacent to Longueville. Um, But the question now became, could they retain it? Now, unfortunately, the Germans held the fields around the southern wood and the high ground to the north. So the South Africans were enclosed within a salient. So if you've listened to previous episodes... Picture the Second Battle of Ypres in a space less than a square mile. It's not a good place. No, it's not a good place to be. I would not, not want to be there. Now, Tanner had planned to actually redeploy most of the men holding the outer perimeter of the wood, leaving small detachments with machine gunners to hold the line. However, by three in the afternoon, the Germans had begun shelling Delville, Longueville, and the road back to Montauban. Now, the only reason why I mentioned that they were shelling Montauban is because that's where injured soldiers were trying to get back to the rear. And they were shelling these injured men and killing them. And it was really sad and mean. It's mean Germans. (laughs) They're just mean. I know. This whole war was just mean. Mean. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But uh, for the men remaining on the perimeter of the wood, they were commanded to dig in. But it was exceptionally difficult to construct a dugout in a wooded area as you have to break through routes that are well established. After several hours of digging, the med had only dug down 18 inches. And of course, this provided no protection against the fierce German counter-bombardment. Now, at this time, artillery shells were raining down at a rate of 400 shells per minute on three fronts, and this created catastrophic damage, and the South Africans suffered heavy, heavy losses. Now, regardless of everything these poor men had been through by the morning of the 16th of July, The trenches had been dug and the South Africans were ordered then to capture the remainder of the wood. So 
we're talking about catch, like basically capturing that long aval type area. So while the South Africans would push westwards, um, the 27th Highlanders that were stationed in Longy Val would push north and then east. So basically they were kind of like fanning into each other. Um, now this attack was a complete failure, um, partly because there was no artillery bombardment prior to, and the men were extremely tired and thinly stretched. So it's not quite at this point, but the men who had entered Delvoed Wood, they would be there for a total of 72 hours fighting on the front, which is insane. Um, the conditions at the time were especially dry and hot, um, and the German counter-bombardment made it near impossible to bring desperately needed food and water to the front. Now, despite pleas from Tanner, no reinforcements could be sent to the lines. The South Africans instead would have to make do with what little resources they had. Now, for the remainder of the 16th and 17th, not a whole lot changed. Um, the South African and Highlanders attempted to make a few new advances, um, but some were called off simply because they just didn't have enough men. But uh, from the evening of the 17th to the 20th of July, the South Africans had to then fend off a heavy German counterattack. Now, advancing their bombers and snipers into the wood, the South Africans and 26 Highlander units ended up in complete disarray, and they often had to resort to hand-to-hand -to -hand combat to survive. Now, the once pristine wood was now pocketed with shell holes and scattered with the dead and dying. A German officer wrote, Delville Wood has disintegrated into a shattered wasteland of shattered trees, charred and burning stumps, craters thick with mud and blood, the corpses, corpses everywhere. In places they were piled four deep. Worst of all was the lowing of the wounded. It sounded like a cattle ring at the spring fair. Now, by some miracle, the Allies were able to hold off the counterattack, and at 6 p.m. on the evening of the 20th, they were actually successful in taking the remainder of Long Eval, but it would not be until the 25th of August that the entirety of the wood would be secured. Now, it cannot be emphasized enough how dire the situation was for the South Africans that held the wood between the 14th to the 20th of July. Of the 3,153 men in the brigade, only 773 came out unscathed. Now, I had actually read somewhere that a casualty rate of 30% is enough to incapacitate a military unit, and their casualty rate was 75%. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's this brutal. is so depressing. <laughs> I know we picked quite the topic for our first season. <laughs> it's so depressing. <laughs> Every time I have to do research, I'm like, oh, this is not the fun I thought it would be. <laughs> oh, oh, really? <laughs> I like learning about it. <laughs> I like learning about it, but my gosh, you just hear about these all these poor men, and it's horrible. It's heavy. 
For sure. I know. So with that being said, let's jump into the next <laughs> battle. <laughs> More death. Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk about Poisier. Now, the battle for Poisier is the fight for the center of the Somme and command of the highest point of the ridge. Now, Poisier had long been a German stronghold throughout the war. And actually, on July 4th, the 34th Division of the BEF was holding that area, and they were unsuccessful in overtaking their objectives, um, which included Canton Maison and La Boisselle. Now, just for your reference, like the 34th Division had 6,380 casualties on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, making it the highest out of all divisions on the front. Now, it was so bad that they actually had to be replaced by the 19th Division until they could recuperate. So not a great place to be. Now, um, as I kind of alluded to in the beginning, um, La Boisselle and Canton Maison was captured on the 4th and 10th of July, respectively, which left the door open to Pazier. So between July 14th and 17th, two offensive attacks were launched, but they failed miserably. At this point, Haig appointed Lieutenant General Herbert Goh. Goff? Goff. Is it Goff? I looked it up. It's Goff. Oh, good. (laughs) Good thing you're here. Uh, He was the commander of the reserve army, and he was instructed to organize the attack. And he had reinforcements from the 1st, 2nd, and 4th Divisions of the 1st Anzac Corps. Now, again, the Anzacs are the Australians and New Zealanders, and they had actually come over from Gallipoli to fight on the Western Front. Gulf was impulsive and high-strung, which brought him into direct conflict with Major General Walker of the 1st Division of the Anzac Corps. Now, Goff wanted to launch an attack like, now, let, like, let's go. And he didn't even want to wait for the Anzacs artillery units to show up. So, <laughs> like, oh my God. Now, fortunately, cooler heads prevailed and the offensive was rescheduled to the 22nd of July. As it was agreed, more preparation time was needed. Now, this was especially important since the advance was now going to be primarily conducted by the Anzacs. So, you know, maybe give them some time to organize. I want to have everybody there. Yeah. You know. <laughs> uh, sometimes these guys, the audacity. <laughs> okay, so their job, of course, was to take Pazier Village and the trenches OG1 and OG2, which were running parallel to the town. Um, Now, the pre-offensive bombardment commenced on July the 19th, and this included the use of phosgene and tear gas. So again, we're seeing greater use of chemicals in World War I. And then after, at 12.30 a.m. on the 23rd, the 1st Division advanced behind a rolling barrage until they were close enough to rush on the Pozier Trench. Now, for the most part, the Anzacs faced little resistance with the exception of the 9th Battalion because they had to move between OG-1 
an OG2 trenches, which I not want to do. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, so, of course, going up these lines, they inevitably encountered a strong point along OG1. But for Private John Leake, this was not a problem at all. He ran forward, bombed the position, and he killed all the remaining men at that uh, strong, strong point with his bayonet. When his commanding officer found him, he was calmly wiping the blood off his bayonet with his hat. Now, he won the Victoria Cross for that, which, yeah. I mean, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But at what point is it like heroic or totally out of your mind? <laughs> Crazy. Enjoying this? I don't I don't know I if don't he was know. enjoying it or not. He did it though. <laughs> he did what he had to do. <laughs> yeah. Oh uh, well, I'm I'm kind of glad he did, but still. Oof. Crazy. In the second and third phases of the advance, the Anzacs were successful in taking the village and a German bunker known as Gibraltar, but they were not having the same success with the OG lines. Now, taking the OG lines was no easy task. Now, first of all, artillery shells have this ability to destroy everything. So it's particularly difficult to know where something is or used to be. And it gets even more difficult when you're trying to navigate at night. Second, the Germans generally have this strict policy that all ground must be regained immediately. So the Anzacs were under constant artillery bombardment and they were always on edge that an attack was coming. And it, it was kind of just like this back and forth game. It's like, well, the Germans are bombing, so we should bomb them. And then the Germans are like, well, they're bombing us, so we're going to bomb them even more. So it was like this back and forth little game for a while. It's just a tennis game. Yes. With weapons. Now, attempts were made to capture the OG lines on the 27th, on the morning of the 29th, and again on August 4th. Now, luckily, by the third attempt, they had given themselves sufficient time to construct jumping off trenches, uh, bring enough artillery to the front, and launch the attack at dusk when men could still see. Um, but of course, I mean, it wasn't perfect. Not all the trenches had been completed. Uh, there were heavy communication problems, and they were still under fire. But they were actually successful in capturing the OG lines and actually kind of went beyond their objective to the point where they could now see Corselet in the distance. So, of course, the Germans attempted to regain these lines and those attempts were made on the 5th and 6th of August, but they did so unsuccessfully. Now, if there is any uncertainty as to just how brutal this battle was, the Anzacs had 23,000 casualties and the 47th Division of the BEF, um, which I didn't really touch on too much, but they uh, were there too and they lost 2,700 men. Now to the north of Pazier and southwest of Corselet was Moquet Farm. Again, just another point on the ridge to be taken. 
Um, the Anzacs attempted to take the farm on several occasions throughout August and September, um, but they suffered greatly and had over 2,000 casualties. Now, they were eventually relieved by the Canadians and British, which they kind of like won and lost and won and lost a few times. So I think they won it in the end. So those are sort of like the two big battles of the second phase. Um, there are a couple other small ones that I'm just going to touch on briefly. So the first one is Guimont. Now, in September, the 4th British Army moved to Guimont, uh, which is a village two kilometers south of Longy Val. Now, Rawlinson's hope in taking Guimont was that it would help straighten the British trench lines, therefore ridding itself of the salient around Delville Wood. So from July 23rd to the end of August, several attempts were made to capture the village, um, of course, unsuccessful. Um, but by September, Haig believed that the German lines were thinning and he wanted to exploit this weakness and he commanded another attack. Now, the 13th Corps was given the objective to capture the line to the north of Guimont at Luz Wood. I think it's Luz Wood. I need to learn how to speak French. <laughs> <laughs> if nothing else, just for this season of the podcast. 100%. Man, we're going to Montreal in June and I'm already just like, oh no. <laughs> I'm just going to pull my famous line of, uh, parlez-vous en français? <laughs> and they'll have a laugh and they'll, oh, you stupid Canadian. Oh, you stupid Alberta. Let me help you. You are so pathetic. For those of. <laughs> The listeners that weren't in France with us, Ashley and I went to France and the whole time I had been asking the French people if they spoke English, parlez-vous anglais, and Ashley said, it's my turn, it's my turn, I want to do it this time. I said, sure, go ahead, and she came out and said, parlez-vous français? <laughs> and the, the men at the, I think it was at one of the train stations, just started howling at us. <laughs> it was so funny. But they were so nice afterwards. <laughs> That's because they probably thought we were pretty dumb. That's what I mean. It works. <laughs> Just play dumb. Exactly. <laughs> uh, all right. Where did I leave off? Now, uh, yes. Okay. On the 3rd of September at 8.50 a.m., the Scottish borders made a preliminary attack on Falthmont Farm, located to the right of Guimont, um, and this attack was unsuccessful, in part because the French artillery that was supposed to be protecting them redirected uh, their targets farther down the line, um, just because there was other stuff going on, I guess was more pressing. Um, but this <laughs> message was not delivered, received to general headquarters, so... The Scottish borders didn't do too well, um, nor would the 15th and 14th Royal Warwicks later that day. But of course, the show must go on, and so it did at noon for the BEF. Now, they were successful in taking Wedgwood and the village of Guimont itself, but they were unable to advance to lose wood, because the 15th Corps, uh, who was simultaneously attacking at Ginchy, did not take their objective. 
Now on the fifth, efforts were successful in capturing Felfmont Farm and Lusewood. Um, finally, um, the Germans did launch again a massive counterattack um, between the sixth and eighth, but they were repelled. So another point on the line that was successfully captured. So yay! Um, so last but not least, we are at Ginchi. So following the Battle of Guimont, the British were ordered to capture the village of Ginchi as it provided an important vantage point over the German third line, and it would further close the salient of Delville Wood. Now, as we know, previous attempts were made on the village, but the BEF couldn't retain any gains they had made. The advance didn't start too well as the artillery units were firing on the 7th Royal Irish Rifles, which incapacitated them so badly the 49th Brigade had to move into their place. So that was a big whoops. Now, the infantry's advancement command... <laughs> I can't sorry. I can see you just putting your head in your hand. Like, when are you going to be done? <laughs> I'm just laughing and I had it on mute. <laughs> you did. But I can see you out of the corner of my eye. <laughs> <laughs> what is the what's the matter? <laughs> I'm just laughing at all the times you're messing up and thinking about how I can keep it for a bloopers reel. <laughs> all right, picking up where I think I left off. <laughs> so the infantry's advancement commenced at 4:45 p.m. Um, and this gave them enough light to make their advance, but little time for the Germans to counter attack because there just simply wasn't enough daylight left. So around midnight, the BEF took the village. And that is the end of phase two of the Battle of the Somme, which now will bring us to phase three, <laughs> which Shauna will take us into. Now we finally get to hear about the Canadians. <sighs> finally. <laughs> finally, oh my gosh, now that Ashley's done. I know, that wasn't a short overview. It wasn't at all, but it was important. You so we'll keep it in. Okay. Just don't ask <laughs> me to do short or overviews. <laughs> <laughs> well, this part, phase three of the psalm, I am not going to give any sort of illusion. It is somewhat high level. Like, I just could not fathom digging any deeper because it was so much going on and I'm only focusing on the Canadians. I didn't even go into the British and the bits of the French that were still there and it it's just a lot. So this is relatively high level because I got confused and I got overwhelmed and there's a lot going on. So I, Here we go. <laughs> I was also confused and overwhelmed. I had to read through things a couple of times. So you're not alone. Okay, good. So Ashley brought us into August. So this starts in September. Um, in September, General Haig, the commander of the British Army, of course, our good friend Haig, was planning another big push at the Somme and decided the Canadians were the best choice for this part of the offensive. The Canadians that were in Belgium at the time were ordered to move to the Somme so they could be integrated into British General Sir Hubert Goff's 
That one Ashley had trouble with. Good job. (laughs) (laughs) His reserve army, which eventually became the fifth, fifth army. And I don't think Ashley went into Goff very much there. And like, he's not super important to the story. But as Ashley had mentioned, he really was pretty gung ho. He wanted to be aggressive. He wanted to get in there. So Hag loved that about him because Hag wanted to just get in there and he wanted to break through and hunt the Hun and nobody else wanted to do that. That was just kind of the two of these men were like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> but the men under God. I was going to say, of course, they would meet each other. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Serendipitous. They had to. But the men underneath Goth weren't as thrilled with him because they knew very well that breaking through was a complete pipe dream. They knew how deeply entrenched the Germans were. They didn't know that the Germans had women clo- women's clothing over there yet, but they knew that there was a lot going on on that side. This is where the Canadians found themselves, though. They had to get integrated in here. So they arrived two weeks before the Battle of Fleur-Corselet, which began on September 15th, 1916. Haig and General Bing, the commander of the Canadian Corps, thought it would be best if they came a bit early and got used to the area because the fighting was so brutal around here and... It was honestly a bit of a su- bit of a surprise because these men had been fighting in Belgium at Ypres and it was so horrific but this was like jacked up a notch. So throughout these 2 weeks the Canadians that were becoming acclimatized they were kind of taking shifts on the front lines. Um Ashley had mentioned the Anzacs. Uh then they had been devastated at Moquet Farm. The Canadians came in and relieved them a little bit and they were just kind of dipping their toes in and seeing how things went. The Canadians didn't go over the top in an offensive yet, but they were part of um, a truce between the Germans and the the Allies that they could go clear the battlefield and still hold the line and, you know, got, not get attacked as they were clearing their dead and their casualties. And they, they held the line. They, you know, had a few volleys back and forth, but it wasn't anything big. But it wasn't just sitting around in the trenches or clearing the field either. The snipers on the German side took advantage of the easily seen lines because this whole area is chalky soil, so it's really white. So you could see for miles where that line was. So you could fix a crosshair on somebody popping their head up, no problem. So the Canadians really had to stay alert. Um, the Germans also continually put pressured pressure on the Allied lines with shelling. Unfortunately, even without any sort of real action, there were still over 700 Canadian casualties before the September 15th battle. Well, that's quite a bit. Yeah, it was just those snipers and the shelling because, I mean, that's all they did in that time. So so before they even went in, they they were already in trouble. We have to remember that the Canadians had been through a ton by this point. And many of their battles ended in defeat and sometimes all out slaughter. But even for these Canadians that were completely battle-hardened, it seemed like a really new kind of hell for them. Um, Author Tim Cook, who I've mentioned so many times because his books are wonderful and they're really easy to read. They're not like textbook-y. They're great. But he wrote that the soldiers could distinguish which regiments had been cycled through the lines by the uniforms on the rotting corpses and tarnished cap badges on the bodies that were left unburied. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yuck. So uh, while a lot of their time was spent with minor exchanges and what was basically cleanup, 
They were also preparing for the offensive that they knew was coming. They were still doing training and running drills in this time. And that would be Fleur Corselet. Before the major engagement, the 2nd Battalion was sent into no man's land with the objective of gaining ground so that they would be closer for the 15th. This was supported by a creeping barrage, but the shells were actually firing short and they ended up bombing their own soldiers. And this will not be the last time that they, that they do that either. But even when the shells reached the German lines, they didn't retreat or hide, but they actually jumped out of their trenches forward towards the Canadians to meet them in close combat and had a lot of hand-to-hand -hand and bayonet fights. The Canadians had mixed success. They took their objective, but they had trouble holding it when the Germans bombed back into no man's land to cut off the lines so the advancing reinforcements couldn't even come for support. But this battle, interestingly enough, is where Leo Clark, Ashley's friend Leo Clark. That's right. He's one of our heroes from the Somme in our last mini-sode. Um, he held off 22 Germans by himself, fighting one German off after being bayoneted in the leg and taking the last one prisoner. That's right. So good for you, Leo. I'm actually glad you mentioned him because I made a mistake in that episode. At the end, I said, um, oh, what was the name of the... John Kerr was the only born Canadian. And that was not right. Leo Clark was also born, born in Canada. So I'm very sorry, Leo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he'll forgive you. <laughs> so the consensus of this battle is that it was a success because they were able to take 500 meters of trenches, but they lost 48 men and had 147 wounded when they needed all the men they could for the next big push. Haig was again hoping that this would be the offensive that the Allies needed to finally break through the stalemate, and he could finally let his cavalry loose into the German rear position. But really, there was really little confidence and only vague predictions from the higher-ups. Even though they were desperately searching for a way to break through, and maybe Haig got a bad rap in the years since the war because he was so into pushing through and he, he caused a lot of death. He was actually kind of innovative and he was, he was progressive because I think actually this point in the war is one that is a real turning point in the strategies that are put into practice, maybe because it got so bad, but also because he pushed these new tactics and these new innovations and he was still there fighting and he still wanted to win. Um, and it's also, they were starting to learn from their mistakes and they were embracing the fact that this was a 20th century war. Minus the cavalry. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but that just looks good. You can ride up on horseback, right? Oh, uh, I never mentioned it, but like it was just something. He was just like, yeah, they're gonna they're gonna break through the line, and they're gonna be the ones that win this war. <laughs> this war. <laughs> <laughs> I've read that a few times, and I just think, man, there is no way a horse was going to get through that battlefield, even if there was nobody shooting at them. That mud and muck. That horse, that poor horse would just sink. Yeah, I know. There's no way. Anyway, just wanted to mention that. <laughs> so these innovations, the creeping barrage was one of them. And it was a tactic that Major General Arthur Curry, he really pushed for. He noted that no matter how effective the previous barrages were, and not the creeping barrages, just the bombardments, they allowed time for the enemy to recover. When they moved on to a different target, 
you could come up and you could get up and do your thing and man your machine guns. But if the infantry cl closely followed the artillery, there was no time for the Germans to fire on the advancing soldiers before they were right on top of them. Curry, I, I saw a really nice quote from him. It's not nice. It's just kind of funny. Curry said they must follow the barrage as closely as a horse will follow a nosebag filled with corn. I don't know how people think of these analogies. I'm not that cute or clever. Uh, no, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> Using this tactic, he did admit that there would be friendly fire casualties, but he justified them as being better to lose a few this way than to sacrifice hundreds by hostile machine gun fire. And I mean, as much as you don't want to give up your own men to friendly fire, I can see the the scale and the balancing that he was doing there. Mm -hmm. the, the tactic was really great in theory, but especially at this point in the war, it was really iffy in practice. The Canadians found it really difficult to keep up to the barrage with their heavy packs on. Because these men, I, I read somewhere there was a statistic that said that the average soldier at this time, I think it was between 130 and 150 pounds. Not big guys. And they're carrying 60 pound packs through the mud and muck. So to keep up with the timing that you had to have to stay there and to keep that cover was really difficult. Um, and they had to do it through a bombed out no man's land that had shell holes and muck and mud everywhere. But this tactic really did end up being extremely important um, after they kind of finessed it. And later on in the war, it gets even more important. But moving on to the next one, the next major innovation for this battle, I'm kind of excited about because it's something completely new, is the use of the tank. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do tell, They'd do tell. never used them before. This is totally new. They called them land cruisers. And uh, they were invented to solve the major problem that they had been really going up against this whole time, literally. And it was uncut barbed wire because the artillery just wasn't removing that and there was no way for the soldiers to get across it. But of course, a tank could roll right over top. Right. And there were other issues too, like just getting across and the intimidation and having the big guns and the bulletproof, but really a big chunk of it was the barbed wire. And uh, William Churchill, he was actually a huge cheerleader for these new land cruisers. And he pushed their output, realizing that they could be extremely effective in breaking the stalemate. But, uh, but let's be clear, they were no mechanical miracle. <laughs> I imagine they wouldn't be. <laughs> no, no, no. Because in 1916, even cars were pretty new. Like, not mm -hmm. everybody was driving down the street then. So building what is basically a bulletproof car, it, it couldn't be reliable. They they did, just didn't have the technology then, and they couldn't make it work. Um, it, and it had to make it across a bombed-out battlefield carrying six guns and eight men and a lot of armor. And that was going to take a little bit of work to get that perfect there. Um, but they did come out with two versions for this battle that were ready for this battle. There was a male and a female Mark I. I don't know why they decided to give these tanks genders. Uh, um, don't know. <laughs> But they each weighed 28 tons. They were four meters wide, two meters tall, and eight meters long. And they also had a two meter tail sticking out the back with a big wheel on it to give it some stability, <laughs> which makes it look a little silly. But the males had 
two six-pounder guns and four machine guns, and the females had six machine guns. I okay. I don't. I don't know why. I can't. I'm sorry. I have nothing to say about the gender. <laughs> I don't know. I was just trying to go over it, back over it in my head, being like, well, maybe the six pounders because they're bigger and maybe that makes them more masculine. Uh, I it's like I would think maybe more of a parent-child relationship. I don't know. It's like <laughs> having blue and pink razors, Shauna. There's really no reason behind it other than That's true. <laughs> <laughs> other than the pink tax. That's right. <laughs> Um, and, but either male or female, these sound pretty impressive. And they were really intimidating to the Germans because they had never seen anything like this come across the battlefield. But they were really painfully slow. Um, they were actually slower than somebody walking. So <laughs> they weren't going anywhere in a hurry. And they were really un- unreliable and in, with the Canadians, they got a few of them, and only one made it to their objective. The rest just kind of either were blown up or broke down or got stuck. Yeah. Uh, they was... had a good place. It was important. It was a really important innovation, but it wasn't uh, the game, the complete game changer. Right. That it could have been. But one reason that they pushed it so hard for this battle was because they needed to test it somewhere. Some people wanted to wait and they wanted to have a whole fleet of tanks that could just roll across the battlefield and like take everything out and wait till it was perfect. But I mean, Haig, we know he loves his aggressive tactics and it needed to be used. A lot of countries at the time were working on their own version, but when the Germans saw this coming at them for the first time, they were intimidated. The regular soldiers on the line had no idea what it was because they weren't part of the innovation going on in the back. So it really, it it worked out for the best, I think. Right. And it was a good surprise. They got on top of it and it was like, bam, we have tanks. It was great. (laughs) (laughs) But the regular soldiers, even on the Canadian side, they they hadn't seen anything like this either. Nobody was really trained for these. And I saw a letter home from Private Thomas Townsend. He was, um, I'm not actually sure which division he was in, but he was a Canadian. And he wrote in his diary, sorry, it wasn't a letter home, it was his diary. He said, we hear about the tanks, a land dreadnought armed with a great array of guns which can go any place. It sounded like a fairy story and we don't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what this kind of reminds me of? And I, I think this happened maybe in Life of Brian or something. One of those um, uh, Monty, Python? Monty Python where the <laughs> the enemy in the background are like coming and they're like, they're coming. And, they, but, and you keep looking back and they're still like the same distance away. <laughs> like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, I think that's Holy Grail. Oh, is it Holy Grail? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> We're still coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the Canadians got six for their offensive, which was pretty good. And they left one in reserve just in case because it might break down. <laughs> and all six of them were taken out, like I said, and only one made it to the objective of Corselet before being taken out. And some broke down, some got stuck. 
They were really easy to hit with artillery, so a couple got blown up. But they worked. They they get an <laughs> E for effort. Absolutely. And an <laughs> I for intimidation. That's right. <laughs> I don't know. Um, during the whole battle that included the British divisions as well, 49 tanks were used. But General Bing did something that the British didn't. While the British kept their troops behind the tanks, so they used their tanks as a bit of a shield, uh, the Canadians put their tanks in their second wave going across, which allowed the men to move a little faster. And um, they also kept the infantry tightly behind the creeping barrage instead of needing to leave these huge swaths free from the artillery fire. And this ended up being more successful and really led the way the tanks would be used in the future for these kinds of battles. Oh, and I forgot to mention... Not sure if this was just the Canadian thing, but five infantrymen. I sounded really excited there, and I I shouldn't have. It was just a a thought that popped in. (laughs) (laughs) Five infantrymen were assigned to walk along beside the tanks and clear casualties from from their path. They -hmm. didn't want them to roll over anybody because it's not like they could maneuver very easily. So if you had somebody wounded or even somebody dead in front of the tank... You didn't want to roll right. them over. That that would just be really unfortunate. So no. that was the job of these men. And nobody wanted that job oh, okay. for multiple reasons. But also they were pretty easy targets because they were moving so slowly. Also, they had to clear bodies and things. But anyway, getting back to job. the actual battle. No. Getting back to the actual battle. Uh, Fleur and Corselet are two French villages that are about five kilometers apart. But the front that was pushing forward was actually about 16 kilometers from the village of Comble to Thiepful Ridge. The Canadians were to focus their attack at the village of Corselet, though. The whole 16 kilometers wasn't up to them, and they shared the offensive with the British Fourth Army. So on September 15th, 1916, the 2nd Division of the Canadian Corps had the objective of taking the town, the whole town of Corselet. The little village was heavily fortified and treacherous for attacking forces because a lot of the buildings were somewhat still intact and they provided really fantastic views and covered machine gun nests for the Germans. And they also had a fair amount of cellars and dugouts for protection against the artillery. The Canadians' Canadians' first objective was the ruins of a sugar factory. And then they were to move on to the rest of the town if they were successful in that. And apparently this little sugar factory was rebuilt and it's now a garden center. Oh, yeah. I thought that was kind of nice. There's lots of sugar factories in this area. There is actually. And I read that it's because there was a lot of beet production, a lot of beet crops. So they would make sugar from the sugar beets. Now I know. Yep. All about our uh, agriculture. Uh, the third division to the left was to take some German strong points at Moke Farm and Fabic Graben Trench to support the second division and their push into Corselet. On the 14th, the Canadians moved into their jumping off point, um, the trenches that had been dug just after the September 9th raid in preparation for this battle. Constantly being surrounded by the horror of the battlefield, it wasn't lost on the men that they might not, or even probably not, make it home, uh, especially at the Somme, where the meat grinder was more intense than anywhere else the Canadians or even the British had seen. And I won't speak for the French because they were still doing their own fighting at Verdun, And they lost a whole lot there. So, and 
they lost any morale they had, so I, I can't speak for them. But for the Canadians and the British, it was more intense. Hart Leach was a junior officer of the Canadian Mounted Rifles, and in his life at home, he was a pianist and a vocalist. And he wrote to his mother for the last time and said, all the gang are writing post-mortem letters and kind of half ashamed of themselves for doing it. As one of our officers said, if I mail it and come through the show, I'll be a joke. If I tear it up and get killed, I'll be sorry. I didn't send it. He never ended up sending the letter and was killed the next day. Um, his family did end up getting the letter eventually, but it was 12 years after he died. Uh, the story goes that Edgar King, he was a British officer who was in charge of the battlefield cleanup after the battle, had uh, he ended up finding the letter in Leach's paybook and kept it with him in the intentions of sending it to the right place. But he was wounded, and he, along with his effects, were sent home. Twelve years later, he ended up going through all the stuff that he had been sent home with, and in 1928, he found the letter and finally sent it to Leach's parents. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, suffice to say that these men knew what they were getting into and whether they wanted to admit it or not. And actually, a lot of them ended up with a rather fatalist attitude with, you know, I will come out of this or I won't, and it's not up to me, and it is pure luck, because... That's all I can believe in at this point. Yeah. Um, at 6.20 a.m. on September 15th, following a creeping barrage, the Canadians went over the top. And thanks to the jumping off points, some battalions would only have to cross 150 meters of no man's land. But others had almost a kilometer, so it was pretty scattered there. The men moved slowly behind their wall of death, as they called it. But soon, many were almost right on top of the German trenches. They found that their bayonets were extremely useful and dove into the defending trenches to take them by hand. The Canadians weren't much for taking prisoners and shot or bayoneted, bayoneted any Germans that resisted or tried to retreat and captured some that gave themselves up after their objectives were secured. Although Lieutenant Colonel Elmer Jones wrote that some of the enemy offered to surrender, but in most cases, these men were bayoneted by our advancing troops. The Canadians did not have a reputation for taking prisoners. They were just in it to move forward, and they couldn't care less. It seemed that was their reputation. Um, the 3rd Division to the left took Fabic Graben, but... The difficult Moke farm that the Australians had suffered at only recently was still held by the Germans. They were able to keep the Germans from providing heavy fire towards Corselet, though, which was important to the overall success of the day. It wasn't something that was easily taken. There was no sweeping success. The Germans held on tight to their counterattack philosophy and did their best to flank the Canadians and cut off the forward in infantry. Like Ashley had said, they had that philosophy of... You must retake anything that you've lost. And they used it completely throughout this battle, throughout the whole Somme offensive, really. The 2nd Division also moved across no man's land behind a creeping barrage, but theirs was faster than it should have been and left the men out in the open, allowing the Germans to fully defend their positions. With little to no cover, the Canadians resorted to crawling across the mud on their bellies. The 20th and 21st Battalions pushed towards the sugar factory, but were pinned down and taking high casualties. Thankfully, behind them came the slow-moving metal monster 
a tank drove up and drew the heavy fire away from the infantry and allowed them to continue with their operation. There you go. (laughs) Yeah, it worked. It worked. (laughs) By 8 a.m., the sugar factory was secured, and they moved along to securing themselves by digging communication trenches and building new peridots. The battlefield also needed to be cleared of the casualties. Many of the German prisoners were used for this job. They were eager to help, though. A lot of them were hoping that it would stave off an execution. If they could prove that they were useful, maybe they wouldn't get shot. I don't know how much that worked for them. I I have to think that if, if they were taken prisoner, you probably wouldn't be shot. Like, if they were going to shoot you, they'd just do it in the trench, but I don't know. Um, even with the objectives taken and casualties tended to, that's not to say that there wasn't more fighting to be done. The Germans came back in force from their secondary positions, laying down heavy artillery fire, but with minimal counterattacks. So with this being considered a success, Bing moved on to the sec- secondary objective of taking more of Corselet to the north. And that seems like a really great place to leave it off here for episode two. We didn't expect this to be a three-episode battle, but here we are. So please catch us next time where we finally finish off the Battle of the Somme. You can catch us on our website at www.whataboutthecanadians.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at What About the Canadians Podcast. And we would love to hear from you anytime. We love to hear comments. And if you have time and you want to rate us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, that makes sure that other people can find us as well. I do have one little correction. I think I must have blanked out. And I said William Churchill. Obviously, that was supposed to be Winston Churchill. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next time.